book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 3, if you would just repeat after me. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Amen. Great verse to know, a good verse for 2006. Now turning your Bibles to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, new book this morning. <laughs> it's so exciting when we cross over, isn't it? <laughs> the book of Numbers, chapter 1 and verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. In the tent of meeting, on the first of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their, fa- by their father's households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from twenty years old and upward. Whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Verse 4. With you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one head of his father's household. These men are the names of the men who shall stand with you, of Reuben, Eliezer, the son of Shadur, of Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of, read it yourself, of Judah. <laughs> Actually, it's Zuri Shaddai. Of Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab. Of Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar. Of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon. And the sons of Joseph, of Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud, of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur. Love these names. <laughs> of Benjamin, of Biden, the son of Gideoni. Of Dan, Ahiezer, the son of... Ami Shaddai. Yes. Of Asher. Hey, see, you can read these things when you're not reading them out loud. You know, when you're just reading in your head, it's real easy, but when you have to do them out loud, it's a different thing. Of Asher, Pagiel, the son of Akron, of Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Deuel, and of Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enon. These are they who were called of the congregation. The leaders of their father's tribes, they were the heads of divisions of Israel. Father, as we begin this new book, as we now take our next step in this journey, in this, in this study of the scriptures, in this walk through your word, Lord, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our eyes and our minds. Father, that you would clear out our ears of the gunk that gets in the way that we might hear you clearly. That your word would speak to us, would speak to our hearts. That truth, Father, would be experienced here this morning. And that your word, your word would comfort us and strengthen us in our faith. These are times of great uncertainty, Father. Where faith is being tested, where the truth is being challenged. And Lord, I pray that you will teach us to stand on your word. Solid and secure and firm. And Holy Spirit, guide us through this this morning. And be our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Numbers. The Hebrew word. Hmm. Oh, we have we have some more? Okay, if you need a Bible, we have four more. Five, eight, seven more. We've got a bunch. Raise your hand. Found the box good. All right. Okay, anyone else need one? Do you need 
one or are you just waving? Hi, Jerry. Okay, yeah, you guys just get together afterwards, will you? Okay. The book of Numbers, the Hebrew word for numbers, for those of you note takers, and I'm noticing more and more of you, that's a great thing. To keep track, but, you know, you can do it to just keep yourself awake, but you can also do it to walk deeper into God's Word, to refer back. I encourage you, take your Bibles right all over them. If you're borrowing one this morning, feel free, right all over it. Write in it, follow, underline, circle, put little highlights, little stars, little happy faces, whatever you have to, to get this. We were talking just last night with some folks. We had a newcomer's dessert. It was great. I really enjoyed that. And Trinity, I think it was, was the one who, yeah, I just want to call you out there, uh, just made a comment about note-taking and about trying to remember all the stuff that we covered in those first three books. And the reality is the more we study God's Word, He implants these things in us. You will find over time how amazed you are that suddenly you're reading something, say in Numbers, and a verse from Genesis just pops in there. Why? Because you've been there. And God repeats that which needs to be repeated, and He takes us down this path. And I think it's a wise move for us just to walk through the Scriptures His way, verse by verse by verse. And so here we are in the book of Numbers. Book of Numbers, it's the Hebrew Vayedabar. Vayedabar. If you want to spill that out, it's, it's V-A-Y-Y-E-D-A with a little crown on it. B-A-R. Vayedabar. What is that? It's, and the Lord spoke. That's the Hebrew title for the book of Numbers. Now, the Greek title is a little bit different, but the Hebrew title, you may remember as we walk through each of these books, typically the first word or the first couple of words of each book in the Hebrew Bible, in the Torah, in the Old Testament, is the title. That's the way they title the book. So for the book of Genesis, the first three words are what? In the beginning. That's right. I love the way the Bible starts, by the way. In the beginning, God. He doesn't explain himself. It's just truth. In the beginning, God. Well, the word there is Bereshit. Bereshit, in the beginning, that's the title of Genesis for a Jewish person. The book of Exodus is called These Are the Names. These are the names. It's Elashem. Elashem. These are the names. That's the title of the book of Exodus. The title of Leviticus. We just talked about the Lord called. Va'yikra. The Lord called. Va'yikra. And now we get to the book of Numbers. Va'yudabar. And the Lord spoke. The Lord spoke. Now, the Greek word for Numbers comes from what's called the Septuagint. We've talked about the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Scriptures, translated several hundred years just before Jesus came. The Greek translation. And that translation is arithmoi. Arithmoi. You may sound, it may sound a little familiar. Arithmoi. Arithmetic. It's where we get our word arithmetic numbers. So in the Greek, arithmoi numbers, that's how we get the title. It doesn't just mean numbers, though. It means counting. Counting. The book of counting. And because of that, many people get to numbers and go, okay, what's next? Deuteronomy. No. Joshua. Yeah. Yeah, Joshua battles and stories and wars, and that's good. And we skip right by numbers. Gang, this is a rich book that is not about counting. Oh, people are going to be called upon to stand up and be counted. And censuses will be taken. In fact, there are two primary censuses taken in this book. The first in chapter 1. And the second will happen 38 to 39 years later in chapter 26. That should tell you something right there about this book. 
This book covers a span, a span of 38 to 39 years of Israel's journey. Exodus, Exodus covered just a, a brief period of time. And Leviticus, those two books together, for all the time we spent in them, covered the leaving of Egypt, the coming to Sinai, and the giving of the law at Sinai. And that's it. About a year, year and a half, possibly two years of time in those two books. But now we're going to get into a book that is a 38 to 39 year journey. An amazing journey. So don't let the name fool you. It's not just a book of hard to pronounce names. It's not a book of endless genealogies. But like every other book in this 66 volume book we call the Bible, it bears stunning significance to our lives. As I believe you'll begin to see today. Now a couple things to jot down just by way of introduction as we begin to study the book of Numbers. The first thing is this. It is a book of the wilderness wanderings. A book of the wilderness wanderings. Now again, going back to Genesis, I've given you keywords for every one of these books. And we're going to do that at least for the first five books, for the Torah of the Old Testament. The book of wilderness wanderings. The keyword of Genesis. Keyword of Genesis. And there's a fly that won't leave me alone. By the way, there's a rat living over here, so you might not want to sit on this side. Sorry, Susan. If he shows up, just give him a Bible. He'll be fine. The keyword of Genesis was beginnings. The keyword of Exodus, you may recall, redemption. The keyword of Leviticus that we just finished was holiness. So we've had beginnings, we've seen redemption, we have heard the call to holiness, and now we come to Numbers and you would think, great, what's next? Building on holiness, and the key word or words is wilderness wanderings. You can pick either word or use both words. It's the book of the wilderness, it's the book of wanderings, and oftentimes this happens immediately following the call to holiness. God says, be holy because I am holy. I want you to be like me. I want you to live like me. I want you to draw near to me in word and thought and deed. And to do it, let me give you a little help. I'm going to drive you into the wilderness. We go, what? Drive me to church. (laughs) Drive me to the sanctuary. Put me in a chapel. Give me stained glass and other believers and, and, and give me, you know, fellowship and opportunity to be holy. Take me out of the world. And God knows, says, no, I'm driving you into the world. Into that place of wandering where holiness can be worked out. Where the truth can be experienced and known and felt. And so this book chronicles the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites from Mount Sinai all the way to Kadesh Barnea on the edge of the promised land. It's a journey of about 150 to 200 miles and by foot it should have taken them 11 days to get there. Although their whining and complaining added another 39 days or so. But you may recall the story when they got there. 40 days turned into 40 years. Why? Why? After all this traveling, two years and 40 days or so, they get to the edge of the promised land. Why didn't they cross over? Because they did not want to. Can you believe that? Last year we talked about how God, for last week, I guess it was, no, it was still this year. Last week we talked about how the Lord gave the Jubilee to the people of Israel. That every 50 years call to freedom and everything being restored and they never celebrated at one time. And we hear that and say, that's, that's ridiculous. Why? I, I can't even imagine. Even this wonderful year and they never celebrated it. And they come to the edge of the promised land and the same thing. They do not enter in. Why? Because their feet, feet fell flat. Their hearts fainted. Their faith washed away. They refused to go forward. In fact, flip over to chapter 14 of the book of Numbers. Take a look at this for a moment. 
Numbers chapter 14 and verse 1. Moses writes, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And aren't we just like that sometimes? We come to right at the edge of the promised land and it looks a little scary. We're not sure how we're going to cross over. We're not sure how we're going to get to that next place that God wants us to be. We start to fret. We start to fear. We start to worry. And the next thing you know, our minds are saying, maybe we've come too far. Maybe we should turn and go back. Maybe this is too much for us. And so when the going gets tough, when the going gets tough, we get going in the opposite direction. When my marriage starts to get a little rocky. When my job is difficult and the boss is bearing down. When my health is failing. When my faith is challenged and it just seems too hard. It's just too hard. Have you prayed that prayer? God, this is too hard. You brought me too far. The wilderness has been hard enough and at this point I can't go on. I don't have the willingness. I don't have the ability. I don't have the breath of life to take another step forward. Right at that moment that God brings us to the promised land and when I am called to stand up and be counted, I say, count me out. I don't want any of this. Gang, I want you to understand something. With With the Lord, there's a problem. You can never go back. Once he's brought you so far, you can't go back without ending up wandering, aimless, and ultimately, gang, going backward instead of forward will wipe you out. It'll wipe you out. Take the very life out of you. I want you to notice this. Uh, Go back to chapter 1. If you look down in verse 46 of chapter 1, it tells us that all the numbered men were 603,550. That's the census of the fighting men over the age of 20 in Israel, 603,550. The census then taken in chapter 26, 38, 39 years later, numbers 6,001, or 601,730. 601,730. Now you might say that's not bad after 40 years. If you can do the math, that's a difference. It's only a loss of about 1,820 people. 1,820 men who would have fallen in the desert over that 40 year period. But listen, that's not the loss. Jump ahead to Numbers 26. Look at this. Numbers 26, beginning in verse 64. Talking about these men who are numbered, the 601,730. Listen to what God's Word tells you. Numbers 26, 64. Among these there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest who numbered the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. And not a man was left of them except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Two out of 603,000 men survived. If you go back 
when God brings you to the land of promise, if your heart fails and you wallow and you return back to the place, you try to go back to a place that you think might be more safe, think might be okay, it will wipe you out. It will take the very life out of you. This book of Numbers has also been called the longest funeral march in history. A march that would begin, will begin around chapter 10 or so and continue through the book. A march that would last 38 years. And in that march, 600,000, 600,003, 548 able-bodied men would be dead by the time they returned to the promised land. Two people survived, Joshua and Caleb. You're going to see their faith as we study this book. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 30, tells us why they survived. Caleb said, we should by all means go up and take possession of the land, for we will surely overcome it. Now, the odds were completely against Israel, but you never bet the odds against God. Caleb said, we have the Lord. What do we have to be afraid of? Joshua said, yes, let's go fight. The Lord is with us. There's no way we can lose. And the people of Israel, their hearts fainted. Joshua and Caleb, they had faith. That's why they entered the promised land. Faith. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Let me tell you right now, if you are standing on that line, the wilderness has been hard, it's been long, and you're at that point right now where you're saying, Enough is enough. I can't take another step, Lord. Listen. God is as with you as He ever was. And that next step... That next step is your step of faith. Trust Him. Go forward with Him. Gang faith is often the reason God calls us out into the wilderness. In the wilderness, I'm shaped, I'm formed. It's where the practical meets the theological. In the wilderness. It's where the application happens. And for you and me, this book is not a funeral march. It's not a depressing dirge. At its heart, and the second thing you may want to jot down, it's the book of the Pilgrim's Progress. Yes, it details uh, Israel's wilderness wanderings. But it's also for us, in faith, the book of the pilgrim's progress. J. Vernon McGee says the following. He said, here we find the walking, the wandering, the working, the warring, the witnessing, and the worshiping of God's pilgrims. It's a handbook for the pilgrims of the world. Why study the book of Numbers? Because this book will help you get through the wilderness. will help you deal with the hard things. As the Israelites wander, we're going to see. They'll fall flat. But gang, they will also find faith. As they wander, they're going to complain. They're also going to conquer. They will rebel, but they'll also receive. As a matter of fact, midway into Numbers, or actually toward the end, you're going to hear one of the greatest prophecies of Messiah in the entire Old Testament given to the people of Israel. At a time when they couldn't have possibly understood what that prophecy meant or what it would be, God already is saying, hey, Messiah is coming. I am still with you. So the application of the book of Numbers to our lives is great. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul says, Whatever is written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So I invite you to come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we, we may walk in His paths. Now I have a question for you. Am I the only one who is sweating right now? 
Are you guys okay? Do you want this thing to keep pumping out heat, or how you feel? You want to turn it off? You're saying turn it off. You're saying turn it off. Honey, can we turn it off? Okay, let's turn the heater off. I'm sorry, gang. Hey, listen. If you want to be hot, sit over here. With the rat. That's why he's there. Now listen, I wasn't going to launch out on this journey in numbers today for several reasons. Uh, Two weeks from today, no, one week, one week from today, Cheryl and I are leaving to go to Israel. Uh, Right after church next Sunday, we're going to head out on this trip. Yes, I've seen the travel advisories. Okay, so you don't need to email me anymore, but there are travel advisories. Sharon's in the hospital, and you're a dead man if you go there. Listen, I want to tell you something Frank shared with me this morning, and I I love this. If there's a problem when we're in Israel... We'll be able to call on God, and it's just a local call. Thank <laughs> <Is that> great. <laughs> so I'm not worried about that. And gang, if the trip gets canceled by the people running the trip, we won't go. But right now, I'm looking forward to going. I want to be there. And God's got a plan. God knows when my last day is, and if that's in a week and a half, well... Have fun. <laughs> because I will be. <laughs> yeah, you're thinking, he is psycho. You're right. <laughs> but because of this Israel trip, and starting next Sunday night, we're going to have to take two more Sunday nights off of Revelation. There will be two midweeks off from Wednesday night Bible study. And I didn't want to launch in and then stop and, you know, this kind of thing. But something else I wanted to talk to you about, the Holy Spirit. We've been having some great discussions uh, among the elders just about the Holy Spirit. And what does the Bible literally say about how we receive the Spirit and about controversial phrases like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, if you think about phrases controversial, Jesus is the one who used it. Whoops. So that's a lesson that I want to do, and I want to take some time to study that. Look at what the Scriptures really say about God's Spirit moving and working among us. But the Lord is kind of holding me back on that one. Another thing I really wanted to talk about is the Da Vinci Code. Have you read the book? I'm just curious. How many people have read the Da Vinci Code? You heathen. I'm reading it right now myself. But I'm reading it on purpose. I've heard all about it. I've actually already gotten upset several times as I've been reading. Um, But gang, when someone puts forth a book of fiction, as this book is, that so rattles the, the, the... typical thoughts and feelings about faith that so takes on the Bible like this book does, we need to talk about it as a body. And so we're going to. I need to finish the book, give me a little while to study it, we'll come back to that. But I wanted to talk about the Da Vinci Code as well. But that's also not the reason why um, I was feeling held back. There's something else that that has come up that I, I feel real strongly about and it's important for us to understand this morning. We just started talking about it with the shepherds. And that's the fact, gang, that if, if you've come to the bridge and you're hoping that Pastor Rick as a pastor can be there for you, you're going to be sorely mistaken. Because I can't. I can't do it. I'm not up to it. Now I can teach and I can stand up and bring God's word. And I can help the counseling as often as possible. And I'll do my best to stand by God's power and surrounded by godly and intelligent people who are much wiser than myself but I can't pastor this body think about Jesus for a moment and by no means am I comparing myself to him but he chose 12 and he hung with 12 guys he pastored them he discipled them and even among those 12 he had three best friends Peter, James and John 
who we really spend intimate time with, quality time with, talking to, walking with, working with. And no one individual in any one given church can pastor the entire body. When we think that way, churches remain small. Because so much is demanded of one person, and oftentimes that person burns out and goes away. I'm not burning out, I'm not going away, but we are setting a standard and it's something you need to understand and be aware of. We have shepherds. God is bringing shepherds to this body. Men who are able to pastor every bit as well, if not much better than I am. And so I want to take this morning, with what time we have left, and next week, and I want to talk about leadership. I want to talk about shepherding. And I want you to grasp and think about this, and I want to begin to put more and more the men who have been called by the Lord to be shepherds of this body up before you so that you can become accustomed to them, so that you can know them better, so that you won't think in a crisis immediately, I've got to call Rick, and then when you can't get a hold of me, oh no, what do I do? It's a long distance call to God. No, it's not. But you think there is someone else. There are other shepherds. There are men of the Word, men of the Spirit, men of God to whom you can call. To whom you can go. Think about this this morning. Who is it that you count on? Who do you count on? Husbands tend to count on wives, wives, their husbands, children, the parents, brothers and sisters, family, friends. There are people we count on in our lives. But who do you go to when you need that spiritual advice, when you need that help, when you need someone to really stand beside you, who is it that you count on? It's interesting to me, and I just love how God does this, because I was thinking about talking about shepherding about two weeks ago, and I opened up the book of Numbers and read chapter 1 and and went, there it is. God begins the book of Numbers by talking about leadership. It's wonderful. What a coincidence, huh? That we should be here now at this place. So if you're going to title this message anything, it would be titled Leadership 101. Who can you count on? Look back at verse 5, Numbers chapter 1. And you're saying, Rick, if all that was introduction, how long do you expect to be here today? (laughs) Until I finish. Verse 5. These men are the names of the men who shall stand with you. I like that. These are the names of the men who shall stand with you. The men who shall stand. Not the wafflers, not the turncoats or the rebels or the runaways. These are the names of the men who will stand with you. And at the very outset of this book, before the people set one foot outside of the region of Sinai, the Lord called for a counting of faithful men, of strong men, men who could lead, men who could be warriors, men who could be shepherds, a man to whom the people could look. And in the New Testament, this pattern was reinforced in the church. Acts chapter 14, verse 23 tells us when Paul and Barnabas had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Titus chapter 1 verse 5 Paul says for this reason Titus I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you and 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1 Peter writes and listen closely I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed shepherd the flock among you 
Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. It's interesting, in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2, you have three words used interchangeably for the same position, the same role, the same person. Three words. The first word is elder, presbyteros. The second word is shepherd or pastors, where we get our word pastors, the Greek poimeano. And thirdly, the word overseer or bishop, episcopeo, these three words are all interchangeable. Now in the church today, we have pastors and we have elders and some churches have bishops and all these different roles that we divide up and and give. And in the Bible, these three roles are all interchangeable. They're the same role. It's leadership. It's the leaders. It's the shepherds, the overseers, the elders. It's the same role. So what do we look for in our leaders and what should they look like? Let me give you three things real quickly this morning. Number one, and this may seem obvious to you, but it's very important we stop and think about this. Verse 5 says, the names of the men. Number one, your leaders are to be men. The leaders are to be men. When we look at the counting that takes place in Numbers chapter 1 verse 5, the first word out is the word men. These are the names of the men. And you might say, okay Rick, but that's, that's archaic. That's old school. That's Old Testament. That's Israel. It's patriarchal. And we're living in an enlightened age, aren't we? Listen. And don't miss this. It has to do, by the way, with the Da Vinci Code. The most ancient of pagan religions, going all the way back to early Babylonian mysticism, focused on the sacred feminine, on the goddess. A focus on the goddess. Gang, that's archaic. That's matriarchal. And the Bible is not an archaic book. From verse 1 of Genesis to the very last verse of Revelation, there is nothing archaic about the book that God has breathed and inspired and brought to us. Now, I'm not into male chauvinism, and ladies, please hear me clearly on this. In fact, you're going to see something that will prove this in just a moment. But we need to understand something. That the male-female tension that happens in our marriages, happens in our society, and happens in our day, even today, does draw back all the way to the original curse of Adam and Eve. This was not how we were created to be. Husbands and wives were not created to be at loggerheads with one another. Men and women were not created to fight over positions of power. In the beginning, man and woman were created equal, side by side, to live and commune and be with the Father in the garden. That's the way it was supposed to be. Man and woman together, complementing, completing each other. But a curse happened. A curse. Genesis 3.16 God says to Eve, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Let me clarify that verse for you. The word husband is not husband. The word husband in the original Hebrew is ish, man. Man. Women, the curse falls and your desire, your longing will be for man. I don't desire man. (laughs) I have any use for man myself. Listen. The desire for man that is talked about here, I believe, is not a desire for a man. It's a desire to have what man has. It's a desire to be in a man position. It's a power issue. It's a struggle issue. It's the inability because of sin for us to accept the beautiful, wonderful, godly roles that we've been given that do complement each other, that do function together, and say, no, I want what you have. 
I want to be on that little league team. I want to be in that position. I'm saying, Rick, you're walking on thin ice. I know. <laughs> the ideal game is not man lording it over woman. And the ideal is not Lord gaining the position given to man, whatever that position is. And I think you'll see it more clearly here in a second. The ideal, the ideal is equality. Jesus said from the beginning, it has not been this way. Speaking of this power struggle. It wasn't that way in the beginning when God created. Paul said in Galatians 3.28, and Christians listen because this is great news. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. In Christ Jesus, you are all one. Who's the boss in your household? If Jesus is in your marriage, you're one. You share the role. You submit one to another. And you love each other. So there should be male, no male domination. You may wonder about this. What does this look like in a church dominated by male leadership? Well, the word dominated is the problem. There's not supposed to be domination. The church shouldn't be filled with dominating males residing over all the flock, caring for the flock, and subduing especially those female types. <laughs> Who we love for our own purposes. <laughs> but number one, and just mark this, the Bible is clear about it. The leaders are to be men. The leaders are to be men. And number two, the leaders are to be here with you. It says the names of the men who shall stand with you. They are to be men, and they are to men, be men who are with you. The Hebrew word here, with, is eth. And it literally means together with. Together with. He doesn't say these are the men who are going to be above you, the men who are over you, the men who have command of you. It's the men who are to be with you. Shepherds are in and among sheep. They're with the flock. They rest with the flock. They eat with the flock. They walk with the flock. They are with the flock all the time. They are, well, they're men who smell like sheep. That's the ideal for a leader right there. Someone who, in, when you come into a congregation, a body of believers, you can't really tell necessarily who the leaders are because everybody is in Christ together. We don't have special buttons or little crowns or you know hats that they wear that, that say, I am higher and in a better position. They are with us. Matthew chapter 20 verse 25 Jesus said you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and, they, and their great men exercise authority over them and by the way that's the problem the sin nature the leaders of the Gentiles the way the world looks at leadership when I say and if I were by the way to say anywhere else the men are to be leaders the initial response from the world would be I'm not having anybody rule over me who are you saying is leader over me? Some man? I don't think so. But in a biblical sense, Jesus says it's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Do you know why women gravitated to Jesus? Because he served them. The ultimate leader in a man we have ever seen in history served women. The first person he revealed his messiahship to was a woman. The first person he revealed his resurrected body to, his resurrected life, was a woman. No distinction. 
both male and female loved in the eyes of Christ both served by the Son of Man and so Peter can say in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 2 shepherd the flock of God among you nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock and when the chief shepherd appears you'll receive the unfading crown of glory but from a human simple perspective being in charge means being the boss but from a Christ like perspective being in charge husbands listen to me being in charge men don't miss this being in charge means submitting yourself to servitude it means placing the better for your wife above yourself it means elevating her in all that you do that is male leadership in the home my friends at the bridge, by the way, we will not have a woman as an elder. Because biblically, a woman cannot be the husband of one wife. <laughs> it's very specific. <laughs> oh, they're trying in our culture, but it's not right. At the bridge, the leaders will be men. And biblically, I think that's right. But gang, the role of leadership is one of together withness. That's a good word to write down. Together withness. That's leadership. And watch this. Flip in your Bibles to First Timothy chapter three. First Timothy three. Beginning in verse one, I'll let you catch up. I'm going to go ahead and read. It is a trustworthy statement. First Timothy three one. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. That line right there disqualifies all of us, by the way, from leadership. But we do our best and we follow the Spirit and we trust His forgiveness and grace. But a leader must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, Pugnacious, just not a word we use enough in our vocabulary. But gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 6, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, that's a good passage to study and to understand where, what, what Paul's talking about when he's looking for elders, leaders in a church body. But there's a single word that's fascinating to me that's very important here. We'll probably spend more time in this passage, maybe next week. But understand this one thing about every man who is a shepherd every man who would aspire to leadership in the body of Christ he must be husband of one wife isn't that interesting the men are leadership male leadership but make sure they're married why why because the leaders lead together with and at the bridge we lead with our wives the men who are in leadership, the elders, okay, when someone's asked to be an elder here, the wife is looked at as closely as, as the husband is. As a couple, there is wisdom in this. That God brings a stability. And there are so many times, in fact, I don't know if you knew this, but when our elders meet, and we have a, a monthly meeting that's, that we always have and we meet other times as well, but when we meet once a month, we usually meet down here at the Gilmore's house, all of our wives meet up at my house at the same time. And they're praying, they're talking about things, and, and they're, you know, the decisions come out, and let me be clear about this, that, that we make the decisions 
in, um, among the men who lead, but we have all kinds of input constantly from our wives because we're not always smart enough to figure it out. There have been times in the last couple of years where we've had some kind of issue we were dealing with, and I said, guys, go home and, and talk to your wives about this because we're not getting anywhere. And we come back with some great ideas, with some direction, with some spirituality, which is what men tend to lack. And so God puts us together, together withness. The leaders are to be men who are with you, together with you. Men who have the benefit of wisdom and spiritual sensitivity and compassion that we can draw from our wives. These things that are inherent in a woman. By the way, listen to this, Proverbs 31, verse 10. An excellent wife, who can find... Oh, it goes on, sorry. For for her worth, her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Verse 12 tells us, she will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she, I love this line. In fact, find this, underline it in your Bibles. Proverbs 31, verse 12, the last few words it says, And she smiles at the future. Isn't that great? A woman who's looking for Jesus, who's smiling at the future, guys, that's a woman to be with. Verse 26 says, She opens her mouth in, in wisdom, and the teachings of kindness are on her tongue. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Together with. The leaders are men, but the leaders are men who are together with their wives and together with you. And Ephesians 5.21 tells us to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Last thing. Number three. Leaders are to be men who shall stand with you. They're not just to be men, not just to be men who are with you, but men who will stand. Something that intrigues me in this first chapter of Numbers is the leadership values found in the names of the 12 men who are set apart here. You probably knew, those of you who have studied with us before, you know that when we come to a genealogy, we don't just read the names and go running by. We pause and say, what do these names mean? Is there a reason these men are listed? Can we learn something even from the meaning of their names? Hang on just a second. Just a few more minutes. Uh, look again at Numbers chapter five, uh, 1 verse 5. These are the names of the men who shall stand with you. Of Reuben, Eliezer, the son of Shadur. Now I wish we had time this morning. I knew we wouldn't, so we're not going to do the rest of the names. But I want you to hear this name because it's important. The first man to be counted. The first name listed, Eliezer. Leader of the tribe of Reuben. His name means, God is my rock. God is my rock. A leader is someone who stands and has a rock to stand on. Who is not afraid to stand up for the truth even when there are those clamoring against the truth. Who is not afraid to say the word is the word whether it makes me comfortable or not. A man, a leader is one who stands whose God is his rock. Just like Eliezer. Now this is fascinating to me. Because when you read in Genesis chapter 49, going back there, Israel, the man, that is Jacob, was blessing his sons. He called his twelve sons together, and over each one he pronounces a blessing, some it sounds more like a curse. But the reality is, as Jacob pronounces these blessings, he is also prophesying. He's saying things about these people that are absolutely amazing. He prophesies and he says the following. And don't miss, I know the light went out. Don't miss this. He says in Genesis chapter 49, verse 3, Reuben, you're my firstborn. 
my might and the beginning of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And then he says this, uncontrolled as water, you will not have preeminence. Reuben, you're as uncontrolled as water. But out of this wishy-washy, slippery when wet background, the Lord calls into leadership a man for whom God is his rock. Isn't that great? From the tribe of Reuben, prophesied that this tribe is going to be wishy-washy, uncontrolled as water. The first man called out of that tribe, his name is God is my rock. And whether the water is rushing around me, and people are flaky, and things are not working out, and the light keeps going off, no matter what happens, God is my rock. God is my rock. Now, no offense, gentlemen, but without God as our rock, there is not a man among us who would not be as uncontrolled as water. If God was not my rock, there is nothing but flakiness, Oscar milk toast guys hanging out here, not able to make any decisions, flaky going back and forth. That's the reality of human, of mankind. But when God is your rock, you have someone to anchor to. You have one whom you can stand on. Is there a man you can count on? Is there a man you can count on? And please don't miss this. I submit there is. And his name is Jesus. And he is my rock. And he is the shepherd. And he is the leader. And any man who is not willing to stand on the rock of Jesus Christ has no business standing in any kind of leadership. And I will say this clearly to you all. When we say follow the direction, the decisions of the leaders of this body, only do so as they follow Christ. If the following is about us or we begin to go off in some other direction at that point, you say, I will not stand with you. I will only stand on the rock who is Jesus. Verse 5 again, these are the names of the men who shall stand with you. And verse 16, these are they who were called of the congregation, the leaders of their father's tribes. They were the heads of the divisions of Israel. It's a prescription game for steadfastness in the storms of life. A prescription for going into the wilderness, but having someone you can anchor to. And having men who are anchored to that someone who you can grab onto when the storms get heavy, when it gets difficult. So let me ask you one last time this morning, are you wandering in the wilderness? Are you dry? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Are you lost? God who is our rock calls us. The wilderness is not a bad place to be as difficult as it may be if we are standing on God who is our rock.